Hello and welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. I'm Joe Devine and I'm joined here in the studio by Alex Stewart. Hi Joe. Hello, how are you? It's just doing some neck warm-ups. Lovely. Well, we'll need your neck to be extra warm for today's podcast uh, because of course there's plenty to talk about international break. Joining us all the way from Germany, EU, it's uh, Guten Tag, Herr Staffelblor. Uh, wie geht's too? Ah, mir geht's is good, Herr Devine. Lovely. Well, there we go. Again, international break. But we will be talking about uh, Dean Smith uh, to Norwich, uh, Gerrard to Aston Villa, Arsenal's resurgence, and Crystal Palace on an unbeaten run, as well as uh, some of the international break fixtures there as well, um, all of which uh, producer Adonis has uh, highlighted in the podcast plan and isn't here to unhighlight. So that's going to irritate me for the next hour. Looking forward to that. If you don't ever want to be irritated, though, you should download The Athletic. Visit theathletic.com forward slash TIFO to find written stuff that will make you the opposite of irritated. Enthused? Happy? Pleased? Tickled? You know? Lots of exciting things. And can I say, Seb, uh, that there is no better example of why one should uh, get a 30-day free trial to The Athletic than the reporting around uh, Dean Smith to Norwich uh, last week. So it was a sort of strange week for Norwich reporting, wasn't it, really? But The Athletic got it right and got it first. They sure did. David Ornstein was all over that. And uh, very, very strange, because one of those stories which sort of zigzagged all over the place between Frank Lampard, uh, a load of other managers who didn't seem to be qualified, and yep. eventually Dean Smith got it, which seems like a good thing for Norwich, good thing for Uncle Damien. Indeed. And the uh, the double act of Ornstein and Bailey there, yeah. uh, really smashing it home. Sound like a Blackpool magic duo, don't they? From like, the a, like a slapstick 90s. routine. You yes. know, someone sort of twirling plates on a stick. Indeed. But whilst twirling plates, telling you everything you need to know about Norwich. So visit theathletic.com forward slash TIFO, get a 30-day free trial, and really check out what's happening at The Athletic. Um, that's probably all for the intro. I will now leave you in the uh, the warm hands and the cool embrace of Dean Smith. better to begin than with Dean Smith at Norwich, of course. People would argue that there maybe is a better place to begin than that, but not here, not on this podcast. We're going to begin with Dean Smith and uh, Norwich, uh, because, of course, they've contracted him, Seb, to a managerial (laughs) position. Now, I was interested to hear that um, apparently Norwich contacted Smith as soon as he was released by Villa. Stuart Webber, uh, who I think is the footballing director or some title along those lines at Norwich, apparently has long admired uh, Dean Smith. It's, it's an interesting appointment, isn't it? But it feels like quite a good one. Yeah, I want to say that Stuart Webber tried or at least considered appointing Dean Smith when he was at Huddersfield. I think that's Indeed. true. Indeed. And then yeah, he, okay. in, he he hired, what was his name? German manager at Huddersfield. Oh, David Wagner. Yes. It was yeah, when yeah, he was, yeah. when it was just before he hired David, uh, David Wagner, yeah. I have forgotten what the question was well, you asked me. Good. <laughs> good start to this one here, isn't it? First question. Really, it was just seems like a good appointment, you know? It seems like a good appointment. You yeah. know what jumped out at me about this, actually, uh-huh. was in Villa's first season back in the Premier League, uh, Dean Smith oversaw a very hectic transfer policy, a very hectic transfer window. So obviously, the Villa team that went up were full of, not waifs and strays, but sort of transient players, loanies, um, 
And Dean Smith was kind of lumbered with, I want to say about 10 different players for a cost of about 120, 130 million. Sure. And I know Norwich's summer wasn't quite that expensive, but there were a lot of incomings, a lot of players that uh, weren't at the club last season came in. And a lot of settlers to settle. A lot of settlers to settle. And Dean Smith has a track record for settling settlers. Yes, it's he does. basically what I was going to say. He also, though, Alex, has a good uh, record of developing younger players, or at least overseeing the development of younger players. I'm thinking uh, particularly of his time at Brentford, because uh, when he was at Brentford, there was a crop of youngsters there or incomers there uh, who are now, you know, in some ways, the bedrock of that Premier League team that's doing so well. Yeah, and he's also used to working with a more uh, data-driven, smart kind of style of recruitment, which was part of what he did at Brentford. Sure. Um, I think also with Villa, you can look at the development of Ezra Concer and Courtney Hawes, uh, Jacob Ramsey as well, who's yeah. been getting first-team minutes under Smith. Um, you know, with with uh, Concer and Hawes, they're not like young-young, but they're still coming into a squad and establishing themselves at a relatively early age. So I think that's that's very promising. He is a proven Premier League manager um, and it does make a lot of sense for Norwich to have moved for him so quickly. It's also, uh, Seb, can we say, um, quite a smart move in some ways because, uh, of course, Dean Smith has experience in getting sides promoted from the Championship too. So if he is unable <laughs> to save Norwich this season, then at least they've gone for a manager who they know knows the landscape of the league they might fall into, um, is experienced in all the different sorts of ways that they need. It seems like a rather savvy appointment in that regard. Yeah, also look at it from the other side of it. I mean, he's got experience of fighting successfully against relegation too. Indeed. And I think based on what happened to them last time, we've written Norwich off as a hopeless case probably a little bit prematurely. If they win on Saturday, they're playing Southampton at home, which they could conceivably take three points from, maybe one, then they're really not out of touch because this isn't a very strong bottom quarter of the league. And there are we kind of have this asterisk against Newcastle because we expect them to, to improve semi-dramatically in January. But yeah, you've got a guy in who's equipped for all seasons, all scenarios that he might face. And and also, he's someone who, um, Alex mentioned, um, youth development. That's a very, very important thing because if you do go down a division and you, you shed and you, you do some sort of bloodletting from your wage bill, then you'd have thought that the um, the bounce back or the resurgence would depend at least a little bit on youth academy or sure. youth prospects or developing players. So you're kind of covered regardless of what happens next. Which they, got, is, they got it good there at Norwich too, haven't they? Nice yeah. new training facilities, a good yeah. youth academy, large catchment area. Yes, I know that's a yes, sort of, yes. you know, a little bit of a semi-outdated um, uh, thing. Well, but. no, but it is. But if you look at sort of, if you look at, for instance, Ipswich struggles lately, Ipswich are down in League One, and those, that's traditionally been Norwich's biggest rivalry. Sure. Um, so you have the ability to kind of almost rope off part of the country. So yeah. it's a very, very important thing, particularly if you're, if you're not capable of competing at the top of the market financially, just in recruitment, then you've got to have a little, a, a few natural um you know sort of advantages that in, and you've got to be able to exploit them too and Norwich seem to sort of have that cornered quite well Alex Norwich are five points off 17th place at the moment it's only November mm. so there's a long way to go and we know that um in uh, Aston Villa season last season uh, I believe uh, Dean Smith uh, saw them taking eight points from the last four games to, to to stay up um similarly encouragingly in Norwich's last two games of course there was a result in the most recent um, but they played well in the uh, game before that against a team I can't remember oh Leeds they played fairly well against Leeds too um, it's just certainly not too late is it 
It, no, and I think Seb's point about the fact that it is a comparatively weak bottom quarter is is true. I mean, yes, there's an asterisk against Newcastle. Again, also Burnley. You do kind of feel like Burnley tend to be able to pull themselves together. And obviously, Sean Dyche has been there a long time and has the confidence of the squad. So it's tricky. I I don't know. Norwich do have some good players there, people like Rashika, um, but... It's not clicked so far. You would think that someone like Smith, who has experience of, you know, what what Villa did so successfully when they avoided relegation was to immediately tighten the defence, yeah. to uh, defend a little bit more aggressively and assertively. That kind of stuff. These are Norwich really need that. Fairly simple. Well, the Norwich's defensive system and shape has been an absolute mess this season. Yes. So you can see someone like Smith coming in with his experience and going right. We, you know back to brass tacks this is how we do this now so there, there should be a significant jump there um but whether it's enough to overhaul those other teams yeah. I, who can say speaking of a weak bottom corner um where's this going i actually have a very strong bottom corner you know one of the benefits of being heavy but mobile is that you could bend steel on my calves you really could right because they carry me around all the time okay uh, bizarrely powerful legs like a horse Cool. You know? Congratulations on that. Um, another man who's as powerful as a horse is Steven Gerrard, <laughs> who's uh, been appointed at Aston Villa, of all places. Uh, Seb, I've read that, uh, that Perslow and Gerrard share a good relationship. Share an interesting relationship. So there are loads of anecdotes about what happened when Christian Perslow was chief executive of Liverpool, and he was... Um, well, the way it's described is he's rather over keen to sort of to become Gerard's best mate. Mm. So he was always sort of striking up conversations with him in the dressing room after games. And um, there's one story which involves him adopting some kind of faux Scouse accent to wish him luck in a game or something. Um, but that's quite an odd character, quite likes a TV camera, quite likes to be the center of attention. But this does seem like a really, really impressive appointment and also you know you can't if, if the relationship has, has allowed this to happen then you can't really knock it um Perso's time at Liverpool was not successful he's associated with Roy Hodgson and the disastrous signing of Joe Cole the very very expensive free agent signing of Joe Cole um but this is um this seems like a smart move the thing is Joe and I want to kind of uh stop myself before I get over the uh, edge of the cliff with this one is uh -huh. It's a little bit easy to just to celebrate it based on A, who he was as a player and B, what he's achieved in Scotland. And sure. neither of those things in this particular instance is hugely relevant because I'm not sort of denigrating Scottish football, but obviously Rangers occupy a position in the Scottish Premiership, which Aston Villa clearly don't in the English Premier League. Uh, so there is a contextual issue. But I like the style of football he's, he's taught. I also think that he has... Um, he has shown a good faith in younger players, which Alex reeled off that list of developing Villa talent, which is super impressive. And there are a couple that, that we haven't even really seen um, yet. Players like Louis Barry is, is supposed to be a very, very good player. Um, happy to, to, to defer to, to Greg Evans about that. Perhaps read that on The Athletic. Yeah, um, follow Greg Evans. Yes, yeah, I, 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 much as we've sort of praised the Dean Smith appointment, Gerard seems quite suited too, because Villa are not going to get relegated. Villa are kind of an upwardly mobile growing club who have a lot of ambition and have a lot of wealth behind them. And Gerard is someone that's kind of 
on the same sort of journey as a coach, isn't he? He's still evolving, he's still finding his way, and he's still sure. he's still developing his persona in senior management. And so it's a kind of nice match. Yeah, a little bit, sort of um, two horses in the same stride. Sure, that's not an expression, but it should be. Well, perhaps there'll be some horse power provided yeah. by Michael Beale. Alex, who is uh, described as the brains of uh, this sort of uh, the coaching side of the operation. One of the interesting things about uh, Gerard is that it appears from his time at Rangers, he has accepted uh, that there are other people who are better at doing things than he is, which is a great sort of trait for a manager to have. And based on some of the interesting tactical things that Rangers did last season and the season before, um, might be quite exciting. Yeah, I think it's I think it's interesting. Um, there was a great uh, Oli K piece on that that relationship between Perslow and. Uh, Gerard and one of the things that it highlights is that actually in terms of holding out for a, a big price for Jack Grealish and then reinvesting some of that, I mean, Villa have been very unlucky with injuries to Buendia and Bailey, but these are good acquisitions. There's also a really quite strong spine to that team. And I think if, if Gerard can bring that sort of tactical acumen, organization, which is really important for him. He seems to be quite a flexible coach. He doesn't necessarily stick, you know, uh, rigidly to one type of philosophy. He's pragmatic in how he approaches. So for example, the way that he approached the Scottish Premiership was very different to how he played in Europe. In Europe, he was much cagey, much more counter-attacking. So that's, that's very smart as well. Um, it, I think it bodes well. I mean, I guess, you know, what everyone talks about with Gerard is, is he kind of building up towards the Liverpool job? Well, this is, this is what I was going to ask you about. Cause I had this conversation with JJ last week. Yeah. I think it's a good appointment for many of the reasons that Seb just uh, illustrated. I also think, um, as Seb said, Villa aren't going to go down, right? No. Well, they're very unlikely to. Uh, and so, uh, I think, you know, steering clear of relegation already makes you look good. At some point over the next year or two, finishing, or uh, sorry, two or three, finishing in the top half of the Premier League table makes you look good, right? And I think it's a much uh, easier platform from which to jump to that Liverpool job than it, than it is from, from Rangers. Um, JJ thinks it's a bad idea. He thinks it is much easier to mess up and make yourself look bad and silly. And he would have had a better chance if he'd just stayed at Rangers or gone to another team that ha were playing in Europe somewhere else overseas. What do you think? I'm like really conflicted on this because I can see the logic of both arguments. I think establishing yourself as a Premier League coach at a team which does have this crop of young talent coming through seems to have a pretty astute um, off-the-pitch setup, good acquisitions and so on. Bit of money. There is a launch pad there, but also Villa are not going to break into the top six, probably yeah. even the top eight. Sure. So he's not going to win anything. No. What he achieved at Rangers in terms of boosting them massively up the UEFA coefficient, in terms of winning the premiership again, you can kind of see that for Villa, it's a great appointment. For Gerard, it there is the opportunity for him to tarnish that reputation or kind of just tread water a little bit at Villa. Yes. Um, if he went cold from Rangers with a lot of success and he could point to all of this stuff, yes, obviously there's a disparity in the quality, but he could say, I've, I've achieved as much as I can possibly achieve here. And also Liverpool still love me because I'm a club icon and that's sure. quite a straightforward transition. But if he does achieve something at Villa, then it, makes it will it be so much easier for him. So it's kind of 50-50 for me. Seb, I guess the issue too is that... Um, you know, his sort of future as a coach might in some part depend on how he's forced to play with this Aston Villa side, right? Because we know that there are 
impressive managers who manage Premier League teams who play in a certain type of way who are never going to get one of the top jobs as a result of the way in which they must play. Sean Dyche is an example of that, for example. It seems unlikely that a big team is going to gamble on Sean Dyche, even though he's very clearly a good manager because of the style of play. Dave, I think people are afraid because of the, the situation with David Moyes when he, when he left Everton to join Manchester United. We see how well he's doing at West Ham this season. Do you really think one of the big five or six is going to take a gamble on David Moyes? Maybe not so. Stephen Gerrard ends up in a situation where, let's say, for example, there are you know uh, Villa suffer some injuries or players don't work out the way that they hope, and in order to to you know attain the, the mid-table uh, position that they would want to or to avoid relegation, they have to play a slightly more regressive or negative style of football. Is that not going to harm his chances of uh, of moving on? I think this might be one of the benefits of being a highly celebrated former player. <laughs> Maybe. In the- well, no, but I, I think you are a little bit more resistant to that. I think it's very much a phenomenon. Like the the Dyche thing is is it's inarguably correct. Same too with with David well, Allardyce. Allardyce is a good example. I think Allardyce Allardyce has been a bit more of a zealot about it. He hasn't. He's never presented his style as being the result of you know uh, his victimhood within the game. It's how he chooses to coach. Um, I think Gerard. Well, this is actually another thing about the Villa job. I think there's enough. If everyone is fit, that's the mm. caveat, I suppose. If everyone is fit, there's enough flexibility in that, that Villa squad to play in all sorts of different ways. You can play three centre-halves, you can play with one up front, you can play two up front, you can play three across midfield. Like You can do a lot of different things. And so it's actually a great place for his coaching personality to come out. I think were he to, let's say for the sake of argument, he fails or he has to play a very, very restricting 4-5-1 and bore everybody throughout the rest of the season. Worst case scenario, I don't think that's actually going to happen. But I think on the basis of who he is and the fact that he is still in this development phase of his own coaching career, I think he gets the benefit of the doubt. In the same way that, um, slightly different case, but if you look at the speed of Frank Lampard's promotion to from Derby to um, Chelsea, Chelsea head coach, and you look at some of the issues that Chelsea had under him, but defensive record was atrocious. They couldn't defend the set piece. And yet, like, he still gets talked up uh, all over the place for all sorts of different jobs. Norwich and, you know, it, we, we've just talked about a Norwich team who um, desperately need to be able to defend better. And Frank Lampard was the answer to that. Like, it's it's nonsense. I, I think this is the privilege of having that reputation as a player because you, you get a few chances sure. to show who you, quote unquote, really are. I think, and I, I think, I think what you mean is a bit like uh, Dr. Richter, who is my, <laughs> my FM safe. <laughs> Who is a is an ex pro European winner player? You know, one of the, the top one of the top players out there. He's and a scary he just walks man. into whatever job, he, even yeah. though he's wearing a white lab coat, he walks into any job he wants. It's amazing. Anyway, best of luck to Steven Gerrard or something. We'll be back after this break uh, to talk about Arsenal's resurgence and Crystal Palace's unbeaten run. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Ah, we have returned. Uh, Arsenal's resurgence, I said, didn't I? Listen, Arsenal, Seb, are on a 10-match unbeaten run, yeah? Eight wins, two draws. Who knew? Not me. I wasn't paying attention until last week when I saw that they were on a 10-match unbeaten run. Eight wins, two draws. Fifth in the table. Who knew? Not me. 
Anyway, uh, best result in that run was maybe beating Leicester away. Producer Adonis also says Brighton away uh, because they played rubbish, but they showed a bit of defensive steel and grit. Um, this sort of run, I suppose, hugely important for Arsenal, Seb. Has Arteta righted the ship? Um, righted the ship, probably a little bit dramatic at this point, but that, that Producer Adonis point is bang on because I think until quite a few weeks ago, um, until a couple of weeks ago even, Arsenal would play badly and they would lose. I think of, um, I think it was the Palace game. <laughs> it's Could a be bad wrong, combination but... of things. Isn't yeah, it? but it is. But nobody, they, they would have this sort of period where, and I forgive me, it just seemed like this was a um, kind of a staple of life under Arteta for a while. They would start quite well, have a good 15 or 20 minutes, maybe fail to score, and then something would happen, either psychologically or as a result of the yeah. team's conditioning, yeah. where they would lose control of the game. Um, now that's been replaced by. Good, although controversial, win over Watford because of the nature of the goal. That was quite a strange one. Didn't play particularly well. I wasn't hugely impressed by them, but they won. And and like I think this is one of the keys to life in the Premier League. You have to be able to have w- whatever it is, whatever condition allows a team just to pick up points in these bedrock fixtures. Arsenal seem to be developing. I don't know whether they've got it yet because... Let's see, for instance, what happens to them against Liverpool. Not whether they win, but what happens to them as a result of... Let's be fair, they will probably lose that game and there's no there's no shame in that. Liverpool are an excellent side. But let's see what happens to them psychologically because so much of what Arsenal are at the moment, particularly with the young players, seems to be based on confidence and all these little intangibles that um, Arteta has kind of so far wrangled successfully. Um, but when you, when you get a jolt, you're never quite sure what's going to happen. So let's see, let's see. But hugely improved, hugely improved. Um, Alex, uh, Arsenal have been the donut. Mm. It would appear playing a new new sort of system. Um, I don't know how responsible this is for the the current vein of good form or not. But uh, what have you noticed about them recently? Uh, yeah, so the 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 switch to the four four two four four one one kind of thing. Um, I think it gives them a greater degree of solidity. I mean, a lot of managers will tell you that um, a four-four-two is the easiest or most effective defensive system to use. Yeah. Easiest um, to coach in some ways. Easiest to coach in some ways, but it gives you great coverage of the pitch. It allows you to match up in various areas. You can compete, uh, keep compactness, which is great. Um, and I think that it's quite a nice way of introducing new signings and younger players, which Arteta has been doing successfully. And you see Saka and Smith-Rowe tucking in a little bit as yeah. well. Um, is that to help the sort of midfield area? Because the downside of a four-four-two, of course, is that sometimes you're outnumbered in the middle. Yeah, exactly that. And you also, that's why you see Lacazette and Aubameyang both dropping off. And Lacazette, uh, sorry, Aubameyang's pressing has been particularly effective of late as well, which is a, a piece that Art Deroche um, did on The Athletic, which is really good. Um, I think... This thing that Seb was talking about with confidence as well. Um, let's go back to what we were talking about last week. Aaron Ramsdale has, yeah. I think, really injected some, um, I don't know how to put it. like Personality, I'd say. Yeah, personality, swagger, a, a kind of a confrontational quality. You know, you look at... You look at that back line and you think, okay, well, Ben White is a very technically capable defender, but he's not he's not a dick, you know, he's not, no, sure. he's not smashing through people. Gabriel is physically very impressive, but again, doesn't seem to be that aggressive. And Ramsdale seems to have really elevated sure. the confidence of that group of players. And that, that seems to be reverberating through. And what's really nice about Arsenal is if you have 
two of your most experienced players at the top end in Lacazette and Aubameyang, and then a really kind of vocal, chirpsy, quite sassy goalkeeper at the other end. Yeah. That's a good way of... <laughs> He is quite... What's wrong with that? Sassy goalkeeper. I've never heard anyone describe a goalkeeper as sassy before. Well, yeah, but you know what I mean? Like, the the, yeah, the way yeah, he yeah. joins in with stuff. He's kind the of like... The goalkeeper. Which one? You know the one. The sassy, the sassy one. one. Sure. Okay, yeah. good. Um, I, I think that works really nicely. Um, Let it, me ask you this. Yeah. The midfield too, yeah? Mm -hmm. They played in, in the last game against Watford, they played um, Laconga. And uh, they played Maitland-Niles as well yeah. in that too. How does that work? That, that feels like it could be exposed, but also it sounds exciting. Yeah, and I, and I think also you could, you could argue the same with Laconga and Partey. Like the, there's a there's a lot of ball progression in that midfield, yeah. um, and you wouldn't necessarily uh, you know describe either of them or any of that three as defensive midfielders. Maitland-Niles obviously has experience playing as a wing back. Yeah. So he probably has more defensive nous right. in some regards than the other two. But if you have this quite high defensive line that's able to push up, if you have yeah. the inverted wide players tucking inside and helping out, if you have sure. a Lacazette dropping off and, and doing stuff in that hole, you can still create a kind of staggering through the lines that makes you quite difficult to play through and like then it. you can transition more effectively it's exciting yeah it works well well what, i mean what do you think about their uh, chances uh, for the rest of the season then do you feel like some of those issues have been fixed or is this i mean they've had a it, not wanting to denigrate the, uh, their uh, achievements the, the run that they've been on has, has been relatively easy right it has um i mean not easy for the arsenal team we saw two or three months ago no, it should be said. Definite improvement. Definite improvement. Contextually. Yeah, contextually, they, they they will develop and grow. I think, as as Adonis pointed out, you know, the, the draw with Brighton, which was scrappy and hard fought, mm -hmm. that was a great result in those terms. Sure. They were out XG'd in that game. Um, but a lot of this is to do with momentum and confidence. Mm -hmm. And if they can continue that, and like Seb says, sort of, you know, they'll, they'll probably lose to Liverpool, but if that is treated as a hiccup rather than... And this is, again, the problem with Arsenal is that because there's this conversation around Arsenal that in some ways doesn't exist around other Premier League clubs to quite the same extent, mm. you know, a good result means they're going to be champions and a bad result means that Arteta's project is doomed. And sure. that's a bit over the top and sure. stupid. No, fair enough. Well, you're on duty this weekend, aren't you, for the Arsenal-Liverpool game? So we'll hear from you in the immediate aftermath of that thing. Yeah. Looking forward to it. Okay. Also, I feel like we should talk about Leicester at some point soon uh, because, you know, Leicester bit there, I described them earlier as perhaps the most difficult game of that run. Maybe not at the moment. Not playing that well, are they? Perhaps we can chat about that Leicester, Leicester next week. Uh, Crystal Palace unbeaten run there, Seb. Palace, of course, also on the nice unbeaten run. Six matches, including victories, impressive victories over Manchester City and uh, Tottenham, of course, less impressive. Tottenham was shit. Uh, also, Conor Gallagher was called up to the, to the England squad, which was nice. Now, Seb, uh, Matt Woosnam said uh, this nice thing in a recent piece about Palace um, on The Athletic. For now, at least, Vieira is showing that with the right players, progressive football at Palace does not automatically equal poorer results, which is quite nice, isn't it, really? Because it felt like the thing that Crystal Palace were unable to get over for such a long time, the sort of, you know, the end of Pulis-era Stoke issue. Remember Mark Hughes trying to make them more attacking and then getting relegated? Yeah, and it feels like Palace scared themselves a little bit with the Boer appointment. Um, and I look back this morning over the recruitment that led them into that season when the ball got sacked so quickly. Um, and players signed um, James McCarthy, Jordan Ayew, Victor Camarasa on loan, 
Gary Cahill on a free transfer. Um, yeah, it, it, it's it's one of those where like you've got to. I think you, it's one of those you, you can't be half-hearted if you're going to commit to a change of direction. It's not just a question of get young players because you know they're a bit more pliable and you can shape them and they're more receptive to coaching than a you know 56 year old Gary Cahill might be having won everything already but you also you need to engender some kind of environment atmosphere within your club so that these young players feel like they're representative of what you are as a team or what you want to be and to me that's the difference it's not that Palace have just bought players under the age of 23 it's that the players they have bought um are very prominent within the, the um, within the first team. Talks about Conor Gallagher, Michael Lisa has made a really really impressive start. I know he's been sort of late starting this season. Um, Odson Edouard has played very very well. Um, Everich Easy is still to come back. But when you think of Palace, you think of them now. You don't think of. Um, I mean, I'm not trying to be harsh on Joel Ward or um, uh, Damien Delaney or, or players like that. But that was the old association, and I think that reflects that. They haven't just knee-jerked their way through a summer and thought, oh Christ, we need some younger players because you know we need to resell value from some of these, you know, some of these players as they get older so we can reinvest. It's a it's been a proper attempt to alter the culture. And married with a a head coach, let's be honest, because Frank Boy didn't succeed just because of um didn't not succeed just because of recruitment, because look at the rest of his career, has not gone very, very well. But they've got someone that I dare say quite a few of those players grew up idolizing. I know Patrick Vieira's career has been a long way, uh, has, has been over for a long time, but he is a legendary central midfielder. And if you are a young player who, um, well, someone who grew up in London, for instance, um, then your childhood probably coincided with the sort of the tail end of his time at Arsenal-ish. Um, you might be a little bit too young for that but the point stands is that he has a command over players that Frank de Boer didn't also as a his coaching pedigree is a little bit more substantial um, the time spent he spent at Manchester City Nice didn't end well but there was a kind of there were good moments to that tenure um, his time in America so you have um, you have more than just one factor you didn't just this time say right Frank de Boer um, you know you're Dutch you do it because you, you know, almost by default, you're associated with something a little bit more progressive. It was something which just seems better thought out. Um, and yeah, at the moment, very, very impressive. And also, it, it seems a really long time since a Palace player um, was able, purely on the basis of Palace performances, and you probably go back to Wilf Zaha for this, was able to get themselves into, into the England reckoning, just on the... On the you know, it's not about hype because there was no real hype around him outside of Conor Gallagher outside of Chelsea. People knew about him, but not in the same way. Zaha, he didn't have the kind of the benefit of playing at that lower level in championship that Zaha did. So you're giving someone like that a platform and it becomes self-fulfilling. Right, well, Conor Gallagher can get in the England squad playing for Palace. I'll go there next season. Yeah. It's that. And that's what you have to create. And Palace are doing a terrific job. You were nodding job. your head uh, through some parts of that, Alex. Uh, yeah, I, I just think what they've done is really cool. Um, I think this uh, combination of enough of the the sort of solid pros that are left over from the Hodgson era, and again, we give credit to Roy Hodgson for his ability to sustain their Premier League presence. Yeah, uh, Recruitment over the summer, hugely smart. Everyone they brought in is good, um, unequivocally. Also, then you put in the massive amount that they've put in with their, their training ground, and that, that's a... 
a youth development system that recently, for example, has brought Mitchell through into the first team. Uh, and I think that point that Seb made about association now, if I think of Crystal Palace, I don't think of Luka Milivojevic banging in penalties. You know, I, I think of the fact that they have signed the championship's best two attacking talents yeah. two seasons in a row. Um, like that's a, if, if, if I'm a Crystal Palace fan, I am seriously excited by the prospect of this. And also from the perspective of uh, transitioning stylistically, yes, obviously Patrick Vieira has a big hand in that. The way he's getting the team playing is good. But also these foundations are kind of, um, they're over and above who is in charge. The, these are long lasting transitional foundations that mean that if, if Vieira screws up, and by the end of the season is sacked, there's actually enough in place there that it's not just being carried by his personality, his reputation, his coaching ability. Somebody yeah. else can come in and pick up where he's left off with this really exciting array of talent there. Well, one of the nice things that, that uh, Matt Wisdom said about Vieira recently was that um, he's very willing to make regular changes, which is interesting. He's very proactive with his team selection. Good example, of course, is that Wilf Zahar played up front against uh, Manchester City in that central striker role. And then uh, even though Crystal Palace beat City, nailed the system, the system was all changed for Watford in the next game. Um, Zaha plays in a sort of unfamiliar right-sided winger role. You know, it's quite a good sign about a manager who's um, that prepared to tweak ahead of opposition games and sort of try things out. I think, I think good managers now... So you have this kind of tranche of managers who are... Uh, philosophy orientated and are always going to play in a very similar kind of way. And there's a very small number of them who are good enough and have a good enough squad at their disposal to be able to do that. Mm. For me, the next tranche down that are good and exciting are the ones who are maybe have certain principles that they want to adhere to. So possessional football, pressing, winning, winning, obviously winning is great. That's a good one. Um, whatever those principles are, but they then make really intelligent game by game transitions. And I would argue that some of those managers can then go on and jump to the next tier because what I'm thinking of here is like Thomas Tuchel at Mainz. So he was very much somebody who had things that he wanted to do, but realized that with the squad he had available, he had to be very, very uh, transitional game to game to counter opposition yeah. threats. Then once he got his hands on a better squad, he could be, you know, he could start changing more towards a philosophy. He's like a double-decker bus. You know, his foundation, the bottom layer, is all of the things he, you know, his his foundation. Yeah. But then he, he the capacity of the bus is greatly improved by the top deck, which is the tweaking deck. Yeah. Bendy bus, maybe? Great. Just to say that you know, you've got his flexibility in there a little bit. So I'm not sure. saying that Patrick Vieira is going to become a manager of the calibre of a Klopp or a Guardiola or a Tuchel. Sure. Oh, of course. But that's, that's the clever thing that managers who are operating at a tier below that are able to do. Yeah. Uh, I think it's what Gerard will probably do at Villa as well, to be fair. I'm very curious to know how a double-decker bendy bus would work. Would the, would the I stairs it, bend? How I mean, would you get uh, between the bend think, I think upstairs? You probably it would be like one master. of those European trains where yeah. um, the, the, the stairs are in each element. So the sure. bendy bus obviously has that central... Bend in the middle. Bend, you wouldn't right. be able to go so you'd between have a stair on each side. But then you have stairs... Do you know you have stairs on each? So well, no. Maybe you could have like you have a two sets of bridge. stairs on a London double-decker bus rope anyway. A bridge between the top... Well, no, you'd no, you'd have it. It's like on a train; you just have those things move, don't they? Stairs, so that, that you can go over. Yeah, 
moving stairs. Like an interchange. Yeah, there's a really fast one outside Mitchell Dever. Could be like a, a really advanced <laughs> squid game level. Yeah. That's what I'm picturing. Like oh, I'm, sick of know. people saying Squid Game. I haven't seen it, for God's sake. Not everyone's seen it. Not everyone has to have had seen it yet. Why haven't you watched it yet? Why I'm busy. I'm busy it? watching Game of Thrones again. <laughs> again? <laughs> <laughs> Literally. You and I Megan have... hasn't seen it. I'm making Megan watch it. And guess what? She spent however many years saying she wouldn't like it because of gratuitous violence. And then we had a conversation about contextualizing gratuitous violence. And now we watch them together and enjoy them. And we pick out bits that we think might be gratuitous within the context of the show. Guess how many bits we picked out? None. No, because no. within the context of the show, I remember going around to where you used to live to record voice when we did the Bundesliga stuff. Mm. And you were you were re-watching Game of Thrones then. This is like two years ago. Oh, sure, yeah. You were yeah. re-watching it then for like the third or fourth time. It's really good. I don't know if so, you've seen it. Game of Thrones. Yeah. Yes, I have. No, it's good. So. Yes, I'm not that culturally incompetent. Sure, I haven't seen Squid Game though. So I have. You know, great. Well, you like torture, don't you? So I'm sure you'll enjoy it. Um, we'll go on a break now and come back and then, uh, and then torture. International break. Ah, what a lovely international break that was. Um, Norway nil, Latvia nil. <laughs> Seb? Yeah, I mean, it's not quite as it sounds because no, Norway I know, I'm were... just teasing. Aren't they, okay. It's like a, they need a miracle to to qualify, right? Yeah, they they they're not going to be going to the World Cup. Um, well, they, I mean, they, it sounds like they didn't really want to go anyway with the shirts and some of the um, some of the what do you call it the boy the boycott uh, suggestions, right? Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, separating those two issues out. Yeah, they've been pretty. Um, they've been at the the vanguard of that movement, definitely. Sure, with their um, the protests. Um, crucially, they needed a goal and Erling Haaland wasn't available. I think that sums it up. They created he, a lot of chances. Is he injured at the moment? Yeah, he's, he hasn't been playing for Dortmund for a few weeks. Oh, um, interesting. So, um, yeah, floundered. Uh, I think they racked up an XG of about 2.8, 2.9, something wow. like that, which describes pretty much what happened. Yeah. Had a lot of the ball, a lot of chances. And these were good chances, not half chances. Um, and, yeah, it's allowed Turkey to sneak into the second place. Um, which will be their route to the playoffs. Right. So what kind yeah. of miracle did Norway require to... I now? have not looked it up, but sure. it's not but a big one. Happen. When a people big, say yeah. half chances now, do you think they mean chances with an expected goal value of 0.5? Because that, that's, really that's a really high. Because that's chance. a better than that's half chance, chance, isn't <laughs> it? It just seems to me like you've like that's outdated lexicon now. Well, I don't so, know. I'm sorry, sure. Seb. Okay, so, so I, he's, that, it's, it's, he's it's calling you old. We've, we've, we've ruled on that's, that. That's, that's all it. I've got to say about okay. that. I guess Can so. I talk a little bit about Portugal against Serbia? A vote in the chat. Um, Portugal versus Serbia, you can do, yeah. I mean, so, you haven't written it down here. Though. Can I talk about USA-Mexico? Yeah, maybe a very bit later. Briefly. Sure. I, well, Portugal-Serbia happened very late last night. Oh, okay, okay. Oh, what, and Serbia. the internet stopped? <laughs> yeah, Serbia... <laughs> I was He's a sassy goalkeeper. He's our very own sassy goalkeeper. Sass, too much sassiness in the podcast generally. Um, really, really, really good late Alexandra Mitrovic header uh. to defeat Portugal in Portugal, which will leave them in the um, in the playoff places. You talked about this, of course, on your Seb's newsletter live stream, didn't you? This which we, we can tell people, Seb, if um, if they haven't seen or heard of this yet. Uh, every Sunday night at 10 p.m., you do a live stream in which you it's talk a about thumbnail. things. No, it's actually got a thumbnail. Oh, I thought you said it was called Fun Mail. 
I mean, we can change the name to that too, no. but it also has a thumbnail. It does have a thumbnail, yeah. There we so go. It's fun mail. That's that exciting. Good. There you anyway, go. Um, <clears throat> so really, he really squashed that promotion there by using a term as many people won't know. A thumbnail, of course, meaning an image that, uh, that accompanies the video. Yeah. With my stupid little face and the title of the, the yeah. newsletter on it. There you go. Pretty, pretty good promo. Sure. Hey, so uh, Portugal, Serbia, big talking point would be the form or performance of Rui Patricio, who let in a dreadful first goal from Dusan Tadic and probably should have done a little bit better with uh, Mitrovic's near post header. Strange to see. Pretty, pretty ugly couple of moments. Um, and yeah, a Jose Mourinho coach player losing his confidence. Shocker. Well, surprise, surprise. That's yes. why you wanted to bring it up, isn't it? Yeah. You just wanted to make that point. Yes, I did. And I've done it successfully. You know, Roma are third in the Serie A table unexpected goal difference. So maybe they're not. are they actually? Sixth. Mm. 100 caps for Gareth Bale. So I put this on the plan before we did the live stream. And I feel like I should just direct people towards that because we had a, a long old chat about it. Um, sure. Some nice but, comments on the live stream uh, as, as it related to Gareth Bale. Um, people from, from Wales, Welsh citizens saying... Um, perhaps fairly, that no one outside Wales would quite understand what Gareth Bale means to, to, to Wales and to the Welsh football team. Well, I think also people from Wales, if you go back 10 or 20 years and you look at sort of the, the relationship really first-class Welsh players had with the national team, Gareth Bale's a bit of a fresh air, a bit of sure. a breath of fresh air. And that's yeah. probably how you'd feel. He's, he's the kind of the anti-Giggs. Um, yes. I think Ryan Giggs only earned... 50 caps for Wales, 50, 60, something like that. Yeah. Um, which, given how long his career went on for, um, kind of speaks to his, mm. I don't say commitment, that might not be fair, but May United came first with Ryan Giggs. No one was sure. ever under any um, any illusion about that. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, and uh, I, I, I made this point last night. I quite like the way he talks about representing his country. Yeah, I think it's fun. I think it's good. I think it's nice to see a player that... Um, isn't um, entirely wedded to his club at the expense of everything else. I, I think there's something old-fashioned and likable about it. He loves playing for his country. This is true. During um, international breaks, Gareth Bale's whole thing seems quite fun. <laughs> yeah, it During does, a uh, normal season. Yeah, I seems mean, weird. I, I think it probably could have been handled a little, a little bit better, but I think it's... Um, I don't think there's any malice in it from Gareth Bale. It's just someone that was very upfront about wanting to play for, for, for Wales and good for him. Good for him because um, if you play for Real Madrid for most of your career um, and in any other generation when Wales didn't necessarily have a, a, a great hope of qualifying for a major tournament, then you could forgive some players for sort of phoning it in because, right, I'm going to stay fit for the Classico that's in three weeks' time. I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to um, run my hamstrings into oblivion against Moldova, for instance. But Bale's attitude has been pretty unwavering from his country. He's been playing for hey, Wales absolutely. since he was listen, 18. Semi-finals of the Euros in 2016 is a, an absolutely incredible yeah. achievement. Um, yeah. And, you know, uh, the whole team were fantastic, but you would say that, 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 that Bale was at the vanguard. Bale is, is a, an old-fashioned talisman. Like, Wales have had other good players. Like, Aaron Ramsey obviously belongs in that conversation. Hal Robson Canoe had good games for Wales. I, and, you know, there have been very good Welsh players before and after, like Dean Saunders, Mark Hughes, you know, Giggs, Neville Southall, like these sorts. But um, I think I think part of the... I don't know quite how this works. I think you need to spend time within an international squad to truly understand it. But I think part of the appeal or part of the... Can you imagine a young Welsh player going off to international duty and you're going to go and play with Gareth Bale? 
that would be pretty cool. Like four European Cups, four European Cup winners medals, and you get that privilege. It's not quite the same as it is in England where, you know, most players are based in the Premier League and you kind of rub shoulders with stars of the game every week. And that's a, I think that has a value. I don't know what, what its value is or what it's even called, but it's a very, very important thing to have in international football. Especially if that player is not there under sufferance. Exactly that. You know, if exactly that, if that, that player is is really putting everything into it and clearly cares example, passionately. Alex. Yeah, massively yeah, like, so. If, 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 this guy, if this guy is giving this amount of effort and he's preparing like this for, um, for Welsh international breaks, that's very, very powerful. If you think about also compare... Um, compare that with the stories Roy Keane used to tell about what Irish international duty could be like at its worst. So the kind of the um, the Mick McCarthy Saipan stuff, like it was almost a running joke. Oh well, we haven't got any balls this week. Like that was the argument in two thousand and two. You know, oh no, no one's setting any training cones, so that's hilarious. And I think if like if you have the opposite of that, I'm not saying that every Irish player who turned up during that period um, had that attitude, but there was an institutional issue there. I think when you bring players like Bale or in the Irish case, someone like Roy Keane, who cared, cared deeply about his country and cared deeply about representing his country, but had a breaking point, obviously, um, then these are forces for good if they can be controlled. Um, Keane, obviously not um, by Mick McCarthy, but um, you know what I'm getting at. True. Congratulations to Gareth Bale. Not to you. Absolutely not to you. USA 2, nil Mexico. I'm surprised by that. Should I be? Um, I don't know. I think what's... <laughs> well, I don't, I don't know what surprises you anymore, to be honest. Um, the thing that caught my eye with this is that we've known for a little while that the USA has some exciting young players bubbling up. Sure. Obviously, over here, it's Pulisic, for example, Tyler Adams at Leipzig. They've got so many people. You know? They've got they've got a lot of really good people, and I think the thing that the thing that caught my eye particularly with this was that the front six starters were all twenty three or under. Yeah. Uh, so Weston McKenney, who's at Juve currently, was the eldest of that group of players. Cool. Also in defence, you had two twenty four year olds, with Anthony Robinson being one of them. Yeah. Um, and this is a team who like desert. They're a bit chaotic. You know, they give the ball away and they try slightly too much and they sometimes in this effort to play kind of nice tippy-tappy into changes around the box, sure. they get in each other's way and stuff. But they're young guys. But they're young guys. Yeah. And, with, you know, with like Timothy Ware striding down on the right-hand side and Aronson cutting in a little bit on the left-hand side, Eunice Musa, who is this amazingly exciting press-resistant midfielder, mm. He came through at Valencia as more of an orthodox right midfielder, but he's playing on the right-hand side of a midfield three for the USA. Cool. Uh, and I don't know, they're, they are, they're on the cusp of being really, really good. Well, they're not is, quite is there yet. 2026, that there's the USA-Canada-Mexico World Cup, is yeah. it? Yeah, and they're going to be semi-finalists Ooh. at least. How does that one work, though, when there's three host nations? Do they all get automatic spots? I guess so. Seems a bit unfair yeah. in the region. But, but it's going to be But then Mexico and the Cup, USA would, would qualify from really that region Really, it's just a anyway. shoe for Canada. Yeah, I think. But then, you know, Canada have now established their own professional league and they are doing really interesting things with data there. They make they make all their player data freely available to anyone who wants it so it's that they Canadian can do, do stuff and yeah. kind of play around with it, which is kind of fun. Does, um, um, is, is John Herdman coaching the Canadian national team now? I don't know. Oh, Trudeau. So Trudeau. He, he um, yeah. 
so he used to coach I, I don't know if he's with the men now but he used to coach the um, national women's team and it's the only time ahead of like um, when, the, when they had the, the women's world cup there a few years ago it's the only time I've ever seen a head coach lead a tactical pre-match presentation on the touchline very weird like it what, was in it the was kind of Owen Coyle style no no it wasn't slapstick it was um, he was taking himself incredibly seriously um, as you should when talking on. about tactics and, they are very serious. Well, he had a whiteboard out. He had his counters, and all the players were kind of gathered around there. And he was doing it on the side of the pitch. It was—I I don't know whether it was good or bad. It was just that it was oh. different because I don't think I've ever seen a coach do that. It felt very—I don't know—odd. Sure, but um, did you like my Trudeau joke, Seb? No, did and so like that's it? why I kind of just started talking because I didn't. New, understand news it. just in. Trudeau. I mean, I know enough about politics to get these, but that doesn't. Make them fun. Armenia won <laughs> for Germany. Yeah. What a surprise. Well, no, not a surprise no, in terms surprise. of like winning. But right. yes. <laughs> Just checking. I, I wasn't sure. Oh, uh, Seb. Um, no, I just, I just think like I, I don't, I don't keep up that much with the German national side or indeed Armenia's. Um, right. But what was really interesting was to watch this with a couple of notable absences. People like Joshua Kimmich weren't available. Rudiger wasn't available. Sure. Um, but this team just looks like Hansi Flick's Bayern. Yeah. And the ability of a coach to come in and and impose that set of principles the so coach is Hansi quickly. Flick, right? Yes, it is. Okay, yeah. yeah. Just, sorry, That's why it's relevant, Joe. Because yeah, yeah, otherwise it would be really weird, but wouldn't on. it? Yeah, but they're coached by some guy. <laughs> the same guy. Yeah. Um, that makes that makes sense why they would look the same. Yeah, yeah. and they, they just, you know, everything that you expected to see from that Bayern team under Flick when they were at their best, Germany yeah. are now doing that. All right, I like that. In which case, then, mm. I want something that would interest me. Are you about to say that Germany are a good shout for the next World Cup 2022? Yes. Is that what you're going to say? That's what I'm going to say. Are they your favourite? You're going to put them forward as your favourite? Um, I haven't watched enough of France maybe recently, to, mm -hmm. but they are. there is a depth of talent in Germany and younger talent. Again, a lot of the thing to do with World Cups and so on is the, the age at which these people are coming to their peak. Yeah. And Germany's got some of its really crucial players in the sort of 24 to 27 bracket. Mm-hmm. Um, they also have exciting young people like Musiala, Florian Wirtz coming through. There seems to be a solidity uh, in the back line as well now with people like Ginter, uh, Rudiger when he's fit. You know, there's 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 just a lot of good Ooh, stuff I, there. Um, Neuhaus like Adi, played really well as well. Adeyemi in there as well. Like that, he absolutely is fascinating because yeah. he's he's so un-German. In a way, like the way he plays is 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 really more Spanish or Portuguese. Is he the anti Muller? In a way, yeah. Like he's he's far from being a finished product. I think he's his finishing still needs quite a lot of work. But as a nineteen year old, he yeah, yeah. can look absolutely sensational. We get a little bit of Austrian Bundesliga here, um, and obviously he's operating. You know, plays for RB Salzburg. He plays from a, a pretty substantial advantage week to week. But goodness me, like a, what a, what a talented player. Seb, it's been a really long time since a team outside of Europe has won the World Cup, right? Brazil in 2002. Is there any chance of that happening uh, next next year? I mean, I mean, there's I mean a chance, it sounds very, very unoriginal, but you, you chuck... I don't think Argentina would be in that conversation. Um, right. But 
just by sheer weight of talent, Brazil looked pretty competitive. Right, sure. Um, I don't watch almost any South American football. I don't watch any South American f- international football, so I will recuse myself. Great. I'm offering you, Brazil will probably be all right. Like, it's something you could say out of every World Cup for the last 50 years. Sure. <laughs> no, sure. fine, you know. Astute punditry there. Useful yeah. little number 10s, yeah. probably a couple of good forwards, you know. Yeah. Uh-huh. Eh. If I'd asked Alex, go. he would have said Bolivia or something. So I figured I'd, I'd, I'd <laughs> say I, I couldn't have disproven him had he done no. so. <clears throat> Nor could I. That's why but he's so successful. I'm going to say something. About Bolivia. No, 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 no. no. I, I, I'm going to say now that the next the next team to win the World Cup outside of Europe will be the USA. Oh. Yeah. Well, yeah. Alex clearly knows that 18% of our audience are from the USA, whoop, so whoop. a little bit of it's a... It's a little counter. Like, can you imagine, um, when the USA first held the World Cup, there was an, almost no expectation around that national team. Yeah. Can you imagine being a US national team player in a home World Cup when there's expectation? I think mm, that is... Sure. I think that's something to be feared. But the Americans think, thrive under pressure. I don't pressure. think it's going to be. Uh, yeah, I think. I think that, that's the kind of the whole point of their their whole thing that they've got going on over there, isn't and it? And the eagles, I think they're breeding eagles. They and love the cowboy pressure. boots, yeah. trunks, Ooh. space. They love space. A tribute to JJ, who's away. I, I I think they are breeding a couple of nine out of ten players and quite a few sort of seven to eight out of ten players. Dude, I don't, watch I don't know. watch Eunice Musa. Okay. Okay, maybe he's just a nine out of ten player then. But I, I, I'm not, I'm not sold on it yet. It's hugely, it's, it's so much healthier than it was twenty years ago. But sure. um, I'd be amazed if it. I yeah. I'm it's in, in the there. business of bold predictions. You get behind. You get behind. The people forget the them USA if they don't team. come true because <laughs> it's yeah, that's true. yeah. It doesn't matter because it's five years away. Anyway, no one will ever know. This is the end. Uh, we're reaching the end of the podcast. But uh, Seb, you've written here, Joe, ex-football manager. Is there a question you wanted to ask me? Yeah, well, obviously, we spoke about an hour or two into your football manager 2022 career. And guess how many hours I've played now? Well, I'll get to that. But um, within those two hours, all of your first team players and most of your first team coaching staff had turned against you. <laughs> so I was curious as to... A, how did that happen? Also, they've turned against Dr. Richter. Yeah, not yeah. me. I'm not one of those people that is so egotistical as to play football manager with my own name as the character. Who would do that? What kind of lunatic would do that, Alex Stewart? Literally what is your name? Is it Alex Stewart? Is your name Alex Stewart? <laughs> Come on. You're given an opportunity to create a character and you just pick your own name. I don't have any imagination, though. I, I picked Dr. Richter. Uh, he wears glasses and he's got a white coat and white trousers and a teal shirt he's a kind of jazzy doctor a uh, medical doctor also a uh, <laughs> good football manager <laughs> he's a medical doctor though. okay right um and he's an ex-international player of course he walked into the man united job they just gave it to him at the beginning of the game not realistic at all in fact they just let him pick it's weird. It's not yeah. like when, when did he when did he get his medical qualifications? Obviously, he was a former. When did he get player. them? Did he study alongside his before career or before he was a professional footballer? Wasn't, wasn't wow. Socrates a qualified doctor? Yes, he was. But was he a medical doctor though? I don't think. I'm not sure that he was. Um, he was a doctor. I don't. Think, I'm Joseph not sure that was a medicine doctor. Doctor of medicine. But anyway, they turned against me, Seb, um, because only very briefly. Uh, well, 
partly because I forgot to include David De Gea in my Champions League squad. <laughs> I didn't realise you had to scroll down to select them. Hence, my new te technique, right? I, I haven't made that mistake again. Do you know why? Because I delegate almost everything in the game. Socrates to Mike had Feeling. a medical degree. He had a medical yes, degree. He did. Yes. Oh, well done him. Yeah. The doctor. Uh, Doctor Socrates. Nice. That was his nickname apparently. Do a video it's not so much a nickname as just a title. Well anyway, he's not in my team. Uh but I did I bought Frank Kessie uh to play with Manchester United. I put him in defence. Quite annoyingly he goes to AFCON in January, I didn't know that. But uh, you know, it so turns you, out you put him in defence in uh, defensive midfield. Oh, sorry. Right, okay. Uh, but it turns out Scott McTominay is good in the game, and Fred's good in the game, mm. and I mean all the players are good in the game. Yeah, and when, it's really you, easy. Um, the game's really easy. You just win the game. It's really easy. Yeah. When uh, when you left David De Gea out of your Euro squad, did yeah. you did you play the mayor culpa or did you try and lie your way out of it? I told him to get fucked. <laughs> <laughs> I left. I, I left. And every, then I selected Jim Layton. Well, this is the thing. I left every keeper except Dean Henderson out. I only have one keeper in my you Champions only have League one squad. Goalkeeper so I've had to get like a guy from the under 18s through. And my fullbacks keep getting injured, which is really annoying. Um, but you know, anytime they ask me if I want to inject them straight away. And here's another thing: because I'm a medical doctor. Do it yourself. Yeah, I'm a yeah. medical doctor. Not me, but Dr. Richter is. And also another thing is, um, you know how the assistant always recommends uh, warning off complacency when you're winning in your post-match team talks, right? Fuck that. What I do is I just, I open my arms and I say to every game that we win, that's the best game you've ever played. <laughs> and they all love it. They all love it. There's no complacency at all. The game is easy. It's an easy game. You just, you just... You just give your assistant manager everything. I hired a couple of good coaches. That's it. On top of the league. It's past Christmas now. They should put you in charge of Manchester United. They for should. Real. They should. It's that straightforward. Anyway. But not you, good coaches not me. Not me. Defensive midfielder. They have to put Dr. I mean, if they did hire me, I'd have to dress up as Dr. Richter. Um, which it turns out, I, I googled Dr. Richter afterwards to see if I had accidentally taken the name of something else. And I had, there's <laughs> a Russian television medical drama that was aired on Russia One Network from 2017. The series' main character is Dr. Andrei Richter, or Richter, sorry, Richter, Richter. And uh, there you go. Alexei Seberyavok is, uh, is the lead. And it looks, it looks bad, I'll be honest. The poster looks bad, but there you go. Dr. Richter. And I'm sure there'll be more updates to come. But uh, that's the end now of the TIFO Football Podcast. Uh, thanks to Alex Stewart. Thank you. And danke schön, Herr Stafford Blower. Vielen uh, Dank, Herr Devine. Yes. Uh, we will be back um, next week with more of the same. Thanks as usual to producers Don and Adonis. And uh, someone asked me the other day, are they the same person? No, they're two different people. So there we go. Athletic.